what you're gonna find is when you might assume there's an answer, there's often not, there's lots of answers. So there's no one way to do almost any of these things. And I've learned that even more as we've gotten more complicated, as we have multiple products. And we ask folks like Salesforce and Workday and ServiceNow and others that are, look a little bit like us in terms of being sales led and being a, a relatively strategic sale. Hey, how should we do cross sell? And every company has a good answer, but a different answer. Hey, it's Adam Schoenfeld. Welcome back to the Built in Seattle podcast, where Seattle's top entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders share their stories and their lessons from behind the scenes. If you like this show, you might also like my personal newsletter. Each week I share a lesson, a question, or an idea that I've picked up while learning from others. Subscribe at adaminseattle.com. Before I give the intro to this episode, I wanna give a quick shout out to my grandpa, Ken Schoenfeld. Gramps, thanks for listening. On this episode, I was joined by Robert Wabi. He's the CEO and co-founder at Highspot. Before Highspot, Robert had a very successful 16-year career at Microsoft, where he was corporate vice president of the server and tools division. You've probably heard about Highspot. Their latest round put them at a $2.3 billion valuation. Robert just schooled me on strategic thinking here. We talked about the real process behind their category creation exercise, some of the non-obvious go-to-market strategies that he's implemented, and the hidden benefits behind serving both SMB and enterprise as he's scaled. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm here with the one, the only, Robert Wabi. Hey, Robert, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey. So I was just thinking back to when we, we first met, it was at Uptown Ex Espresso several years ago, and you just, I think, cracked 10 million of ARR, and you were saying, now you're comfortable in the business. So a lot's changed since then. I think because I've worked in large scale companies, I think I get actually a little bit more comfortable as the business is scale, though that doesn't mean that it's not pretty hard to scale a business as I'm learning, as we're all learning as we go through this. Yeah, we're, we're having a good laugh, I remember, because I was like, oh, that's when I just fall apart. So <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I need to learn from you. So Robert, I've been excited about this because you're Seattle's newest unicorn and you're in this big sales enablement category. And I was curious to start talking about your category. I heard you quoted previously saying it's the oldest new category on the planet. Can you talk more about that or unpack that statement? Yeah, happy to. So if you think about the notion of enabling a sales team, it's been going on since we've had sales teams. Back in the old days, you had the Glengarry Leeds, you had the notion of brochure sitting on some you know, metal file folder, and you were trying to give the salespeople the things they needed to be successful. And we went through various kinds of technologies, and I would say that for 20 years, we tried different things from a technology perspective, and they mostly didn't work. There was the era of specialized tools like Savo which tried to do this. There were errors where we thought we could use general purpose tools like SharePoint. And really, when you sat back and you asked the question, did the sales teams feel like they had what they needed to be successful? The answer was mostly no. And so the category languished, if you will. And then I think what happened is you got into the 2010, 2011, 2012 era where Highspot started and many of our competitors started, you had this convergence of cloud computing. If you, if you go back to that before that, Cloud computing was not as prevalent as it was today. You had mobile, so the iPhone had was relatively new. The iPad hadn't even really come out yet. So mobile was coming there. And there's something that people don't talk as much about, but you started to see the democratization of AI. AI was a big company activity and capability, 
But now you started to see companies like Microsoft and Google and Amazon providing AI in a way that was very easy for startups to take advantage of. And if you combine great consumer UI and UX, along with all of those kind of core trends, cloud computing, democratization of AI, mobile computing, now you finally had the tools, the technology tools, so you could probably make a dent and really help sales be equipped and trained and coached in the ways that they needed to be more effective. It was probably not possible technologically in those previous decades. Got it. So when you started the company, were you thinking about it from this perspective of the category and those enabling technology triggers? Or were you thinking about it more bottom up in terms of the problem? And how did you end up entering the space? Because now we, we look back and we see that you've created this category and it's become recognized by analysts and others. But where was that in the early stages of developing Highspot? It actually came out of my experience at Microsoft. So before starting Highspot, I was at Microsoft for many years, most of those years on the product side, on engineering, on the product side. But for the last three years, I was the CMO under Satya Nadella when he ran what was then the server and tools division, which is a, a big division, 20 billion in revenue, thousands of salespeople, hundreds of marketers. So it's a, a big operation. And I kind of came in with somewhat novice eyes, somewhat engineering eyes. And it was amazing to me how much money and effort we spent trying to help the sales teams have the right information, the right programs, the right campaigns, the right initiatives. And then as part of my education, if you will, being a marketer coming from the engineering side, I used to fly a lot, hundreds of thousands of miles. I'd land in a subsidiary and I'd ask them what we could do. And they would say, I need you to do A and B and C. I need these kinds of materials. I need this campaign. And inevitably, my answer was, we just did that. We did that three months ago. We did that six months ago. We put it on the portal. We made a webinar. We had an email blast. We did all of these things. And they're like, oh, I missed it. And then you'd go on sales calls on those same trips. And you'd be, even if the salesperson was fantastic, they weren't saying anything that headquarters had cooked up in terms of positioning or messaging or the slides that we created or the materials that we had created. And so I started thinking about how marketing and sales could work more effectively together and what it took to really help that go to market motion. And so when we started, what we observed were the same core problems. Can you equip the team with the right things? Can you train them? Can you coach? Can you analyze? But we thought about it as knowledge management generally. And in fact, one of the key milestones of the company was when we figured out that enablement was the name of the category, and we understood who the persona was, and we began to speak their language. Even though the category was not established like it is today, we still, in the very early days, weren't talking anybody's language, including their language. So we were talking about knowledge management. We were talking about things like browsing and search, and these were not the problems that they woke up and thought about. And so when we started to figure out a few years in that we're talking about this notion of enablement, we're talking about this notion of helping them have the right information, analyzing it, tying it to revenue, attribution, those kinds of words and phrases, we started to really get traction. So figuring out the category was one of our first kind of big milestones in the company's history. Yeah, that totally makes sense in the in this arc of category creation and, and figuring out the naming and then pivoting into their language, what, how quickly did that start to pay off once you saw that 
you know, shift from, oh, knowledge management and these search features and talking at that level to talking about sales enablement and pivoting to the customer's language. It took us, and these are always the early kind of painful years, but it took us about a year to make the pivot from knowledge management to enablement because, and this was really early days, we went through another category attempt, which was engagement. Now, engagement today is a well-established category. You have players in Seattle like Outreach, a broad set of players, and that's a well-known category, but it wasn't back then. And when we were starting out, ClearSlide, if you remember, ClearSlide was actually one of the big players, and they were in the engagement space. So we thought, okay, if you think about what they're doing, what we're doing, it's related, it's a similar persona, maybe we're in the engagement space. But again, that turned out not to resonate as well as this notion of enablement. And then the macro trend behind the scenes was that many CROs and CMOs were realizing they needed a dedicated function to try to help enable the sales team. And so LinkedIn, if you looked at LinkedIn job titles, enablement was exploding at that point. Again, Forrester, Gartner, IDC, others had not yet recognized the category, but they were starting to talk about it a little bit more. And you started to have analysts who said they were part of sales enablement. So we saw all that, dedicated ourselves to that category and that was a really important moment. And how did you see that happening? Like, how did you see the function starting to get established? I also think of maybe like a gain side and customer success did this really well. If you can attach yourself to a function, I imagine there's, you know, huge benefit because now you're, you have this tailwind of the organizations already aligning resources in that way. I'm curious both, how did you see it and how obvious was it? It seems maybe obvious now looking back because everybody has this, but at that time, was it nuanced or how did you have How did you identify that? I think if I could go back in time, I think it was probably more obvious than we made it. We weren't doing some of the things that I would now do just instinctually. For example, I would look at AdWords and I'd look at SEO search tools and I'd find out what were the terms most often being searched. Mm. We were trying to approach it as from first principles and how to think about the language and how to think about our persona and what they might talk about. We weren't asking ourselves enough what are our prospects and our customers saying. And how are and, and saying it through search boxes and saying it in the way we talk to them. So once we started to really listen hard, recording the personas that we were talking to, having a sense of what language they were using, and really zeroing in, then it became more obvious. But like you said, in the early days, it was all loose signal. But if one of the things that we was really interesting to me was when you look at the search volume. So even though ClearSlide was the dominant player when we first started in this broad space. If you look at how many people and how many searches there were on sales engagement, it was about 50. If you looked at sales enablement, it was about four to 5,000. That should have been a sign from the very get-go, but we were trying to look at the market more broadly and in a more, more pure intellectual way. We should have just been going down to brass tacks and doing things like you know search volumes. <laughs> It's funny in retrospect, I'm sure those things seem obvious now, but it's hard to find. What, How important was it that you had other competitors around the same time entering this this same category? Is, is that a net positive or negative? Or how, how did you think about that, that the, they were founded in a similar time with entering a similar space? I think to have a category, you need to have more than one player. That's the old adage. And I think that's true. So in that sense, it was good. And it was also the case that as a relatively new category, and really still a relatively new category, you want a lot of education of the market. And so the fact that many players are educating the market about what are some of the challenges that customers have, giving them a language for those challenges, talking about some of the solutions, that is helpful. 
I think one of the things that happens to a category is that it makes this magical move from nice to have to should have to must have. And when you get to that must have category, it's this wonderful thing because now what you're doing is you're talking about the benefits and the differentiation of your product. And you're not trying to convince people that they need such a product. You're trying to convince them that you have the best product in, in the marketplace. And that is a wonderful thing. You saw that in marketing automation. There was a magical tipping point when all of a sudden everybody woke up, had a cup of coffee and said, I'm going to buy a marketing automation tool. The only question is which one? And that gives you a lot of acceleration in the category. So in the sense, in that sense, it's great to have those competitors. The challenge we had, especially in the early years, was that we didn't have two or three competitors. We had 15 or 20. And at 15 or 20, you stop educating the market and you just create this incredible amount of noise. Because people are saying, well, actually, what enablement means is A, B, and C. And somebody else says, no, no, what it means is B, C, and D. And then there's X, Y, and Z. And now the market just gets saturated with confusing messages. And that actually hurts the category at some level for a while until you get a, more of a shakeout. And in our category, that's still going on where there's less competitors, but there's not yet a tight definition of what enablement means. We have a tight definition, of course, but so do our competitors and, and so do others. What are you doing to make your tight definition the, te the definition that's accepted in the market? What does that initiative look like? It comes down to hopefully having clarity and hopefully it resonates. And if you have clarity and it's simple, it's a simple message and it truly resonates, then I think it can break through. One of the things that we talk a lot about is what does enablement take for your sales team? But the analogy we often use is it's how, whether you're enabling your sales team or a sports team or any other team, what does it take to do that? And if you leave the world of sales for a second and think about a world of sports and you say, okay, what does it take to have world-class consistent execution? What does it take to have a world-class team that performs incredibly well? I think it takes four things. And I think it resonates pretty clearly that you do need these four things. You need to equip the team with the right playbook and the right strategy and the right resources. And you could ask yourself, are you done? You've given them the playbook. You've given them all the things they need. Are they done? And you'd say, of course not. So then you ask, what else do you need? You need to train them before they go to the game and practice and do drills. And that training is not in a vacuum. That training is relative to the playbook and the resources that you gave them. And then you can ask, are you done? And the answer is no. Now you need to coach during the game. Like what team doesn't have a coach during the game? And then after the game, watching film saying, okay, if we won, what are the best practices? If we lost, what could we have done differently? And then throughout all of that, analyzing what's working, what's not working, and then taking those lessons and then reapplying them to how you equip, how you train, and how you coach. So those four things, equipping the team, training the team, coaching the team, and analyzing the team is what you would do for a sports team. It turns out that's exactly what you need to do for a sales team. So that frame for us has been very powerful because a lot of our customers and prospective customers resonates with them. And then we talk about, okay, how does our platform bring that together with the right analytics and the right capabilities? Can you take us a little behind the scenes on, so that is such a crisp framework or mental model, and then such a beautiful analogy that you've used to articulate it with the sports thing. And you have your four components and it, like you mentioned clarity and resonance, I'm totally feeling it from that. What's the actual work that goes into boiling down 
to that level, to distilling your framework, your mental model to that level and coming up with with the analogy? I can just speak from our experience, but there's no magic bullet for us. And all messaging, positioning, innovation generally is pretty messy. (laughs) And you go round (laughs) and round in lots of ways that you wish you didn't. In retrospect, like we talked about the category, why did we... why would we launch as knowledge management? If I could go back and tell myself, hey, what are you thinking? <laughs> no one thinks about knowledge <laughs> management in the morning. Stop doing that. For us, and for me personally, a lot of these kinds of ideas come from trying them with customers and prospects. So it's not only thinking about them and having lots of sessions where we're throwing things back and forth and really trying to work together, but just trying them over and over again and hearing what you're saying. In fact, that particular frame of equipping, training, coaching, analyzing, that came out of listening to ourselves talk to some of our slides in first meetings and in customer meetings. And what we'd say is, before I talk about this slide, which has lots of technical detail on it, let me give you a sense of how to think about it. And we, we heard ourselves using that, and who knows who first did it, but as we heard it, we're like, oh, that's a great way to introduce the core concepts. And then, of course, we made it a slide, and now we make it core to the way we think about our thought leadership materials. And it actually helps inform how we build the product. Because we ask ourselves, how are we doing on each of those four core buckets? And obviously, there's a lot of depth and technical um, detail inside those, but it does give us a nice frame. So it's a lot of iteration and experimentation and being able to learn. Another thing that we try to get good at is, even as we're rolling out new positioning, new messaging, whatever we're doing, we set up standing crews where we try to have listening posts for everything we're hearing. And we use Slack internally. So we're getting a lot of Slack channels where we say, hey, I tried it, didn't really work. They didn't like this word. doesn't mean we change right away, but we can hear all that and let it wash over ourselves. And then we can decide what we might need to change and do. In this evolution from nice to have, to should have, to must have, What's the state of your your category now? I think we are just in that transition from should have to must have. And the way you can feel that and the way you can see that is the level of urgency that you might see when you're talking to a prospect. Now, when you think about urgency, the way we think about it, at least, is you have to think about it relative to the personas. So we actually sell to many different personas. We sell to product marketing. We sell to enablement. We sell to training. Those might be the same. They might be different, especially in bigger companies. We sell to operations. We sell to the head of marketing. We sell to the head of sales. And so given different value props, we have different levels of urgency. The category is becoming more must-have and becoming must-have when you can start to drive that urgent conversations where you're talking to, let's say, the head of sales. You lay out what you your value prop is, what the benefits of that are, how we can help them drive their business. And they say, actually, we have to have the next meeting. I have to get the right lieutenants involved. We have to move forward as quickly as possible. And so that is when you know you have a must-have category. And I think we're just on the precipice of that. I, I might be way off base here, but has the current world accelerated that in, in where you play, especially in the enterprise? Has the pandemic situation kind of change that in any way? Absolutely. So the pandemic, the medical global pandemic, and then of course the resulting economic downturn has both given us a lot of tailwind and a lot of headwind. 
And especially in the SMB market, especially in sectors that are um, heavily impacted in travel, hospitality, those kinds of things, obviously quite a bit of headwind. When you get into the enterprise in a lot of different industries, there is this urgency toward digital transformation. And I would say it's not just about enablement. It's really trying to modernize their stack, modernize their processes. And one area that is very ripe for that turns out to be their go-to-market generally. And that tends to be a conversation about marketing and sales and then services as well. So post-sale, especially with the economic downturn, there's a lot of emphasis on retaining customers and doing a lot of cross-sell. So it's not just about kind of new sale, new logo. It's across the entire um, customer lifecycle. So we have had a lot of customers who we were in conversations with. And then as they've been going through the dynamics of the last 12 months, have said, okay, we need to absolutely go faster and we're going to buy And instead of doing a pilot, we're going to do a global deployment. And we've definitely seen that as well. And then those are the tailwinds. So you mentioned that you're serving both SMB and enterprise, which I think has been impressive and and unique about Highspot. Now, obviously, that's good because you can sell to more people. But I've heard you also talk about some of the the hidden or secondary benefits on that, or maybe non-obvious benefits. Can you speak to that? Some of the things that you've seen from being able to go from SMB all the way to enterprise and how it's benefited your business and otherwise? There's a lot of benefits for it for us. So one, just strategically, because enablement is now this maturing category, again, a relatively new category, but maturing quickly, you have a lot of movement of enablement professionals. And that movement tends to be from smaller companies to bigger companies as people get bigger opportunities. And SMB, people become commercial people, commercial become enterprise, become strategic, And so serving them, and of course, hopefully serving them very well, is very important for the business. And we get a lot of our leads now at our scale from people that have had a good experience with Highspot in their previous company, maybe now in a bigger company, and then bringing us forward. So there's definitely a strategic value to it. There's also a lot of things that I think really help if you can, if your market allows you to be SMB all the way to the biggest companies, the strategic companies. One is helping our people engine. We think a lot about How can we bring people in and then inspire and develop and support them as they go through their careers? And by having an SMB category that we serve, it's very helpful, for example, for sales. You come from ADR, which is our account development reps like BDR, SDR, but we're very account-based, so we call it ADR. So our ADRs become senior ADRs. To go right to enterprise sales is a, a leap too far. But you can go to SMB and then go to commercial. And actually, some of our very best enterprise reps and strategic reps were ADRs many years ago. And so it helps us drive that people engine. And it's not just about AEs. It's about account management. It's about sales engineering. It's about services. All across our business, we're able to help people take that next, you know, what we call earn the next challenge in our guiding principles. We help them earn that next challenge and we give them a place to land as opposed to having to go all the way to enterprise. So that's another really big benefit is helping to drive what we call our people engine. And then another really um, nice benefit is it keeps the product team honest. If you think about some enterprise players and you're only serving the most complex, large companies, you can let your user experience, your UI, the abstractions that you have, the level of services needed to deploy the application successfully, that can get completely out of control. But if you say to yourself, no, wait, I actually have to have a solution that works for 35 salespeople, three marketers, a part-time solution owner administrator. 
it really does drive the team to make sure that things stay simple, that things are easy to use. And that's a core part of our value prop is that it's easy to use, you can deploy it, and then you have to make sure it scales, but you keep yourself honest by doing that. So there's lots of benefits of serving SMB all the way to um, strategic. You mentioned that you can do this if the market allows it, that you can serve both. And, and there, there's certainly lots of companies that, that can't. How do you know if the market allows it? Or how did you discover for your business that, oh, the market will allow us to go up and down from SMB to enterprise if we can maintain these principles? So it's a great question, and it's actually a complicated answer. I would say the first thing you have to ask yourself is, what is my ongoing account model? And then you you mentioned Gainsight earlier. So how do I think about customer success? How do I think about ongoing professional services if that's in my world? How do I think about cross-sell and upsell and account management? So you have all these different things that are going to be resources that you're going to apply to the account. If you have product-led growth as opposed to sales-led growth, if you have product-led growth, it's relatively turnkey and has very little resources, then it's a little bit easier to come down market because it's very efficient to go do that. If you have a product that's inherently complicated um, and requires lots of resources, then you can only come down to the extent that you can get a price point so you can at least have some reasonable customer acquisition cost and some reasonable gross margins. So it depends a little bit on what your account model is and to some extent what your price point is. And then, of course, the flip side of price point is your churn. So if you have high churn, it's very difficult to have SMB. If you have low churn, it's a lot easier to do that. So it's a combination of churn, price point, and your account model. What we did at Highspot is we made the decision that we weren't going to serve our customers very differently. We're going to try to do our very best with every customer which means it's very expensive, which means that you really do need to have about 35 or so reps before we we make sense because of our price point. But we need that price point to give you all of that service. When you have a high spot implementation, we might talk once a week, once every other week. We're trying to help you drive your business and we need a certain price point to make that even a reasonable proposition. It doesn't mean it's the right or wrong thing. It's just the way we've approached the market. One of the things that we have found is that there's two kinds of problems that companies might have. One is a technological problem, a product problem, where they're trying to um, buy a product that helps them, but they don't need help in how to use it per se. For example, Slack. So we buy Slack. We might need a little bit of enablement on just how to deploy the product, make it secure, set up SSO, all of those things. But you and I don't need help on how we communicate and what we're going to say in that product. Now, if I said to you, hey, I have a really good idea. We're going to help enable your sales team. You have 47,000 pieces of content across 73 countries, across 24 roles, across 18 different products. You might ask us, huh, how might I organize that most effectively and provide the right compliance and the right workflow? That's not a product problem. <laughs> that's a how should I do it problem. And that's where you know we can help. And that's why we need this higher price point so that we can actually help you with all those kinds of things. Yeah, that, that's such a great pivot because I feel like if you looked at this from a CAC payback perspective first to decide, then you could get into a big trap downstream versus how you're doing it with looking at customer success and your account model and, and your kind of net revenue retention as the first cut. What else have you had to do or what's been hard about doing this? You made this choice to be able to serve SMB and enterprise and you made the choice to be able to that you would give them account management and, and have this commitment to customer success. In making that choice, what, has it made anything particularly challenging in scaling? It came, ver- this model came 
somewhat naturally because in those early days, as we started to onboard our first set of customers, especially our first set of enterprise customers, as, as you want to do, we put all of our resources on it. We wanted to make sure they were successful. We wanted to learn from them. We wanted to make sure we had really good ways to listen to the, their requirements, what they wanted in terms of future features, all of those kinds of things. So we built an organization we call the services organization around that concept for those early customers. And what we found was that, A, we could be highly successful with those customers. They would come back and say, this has been the best deployment. We've really gotten success with your platform. So we we saw that it was working. Expensive, yes, but we saw that it was working. And it had a lot of benefits. One benefit was we really were able to listen. We know our customers really well. We know their org charts. We know how they're thinking about the problem. So we really, we have conversations that start with, what are your strategic initiatives this quarter, this year? And how can we help you drive those? And eventually we get down to, based on this initiative, based on what you're trying to do, here are the projects we're going to help you with inside of Highspot. So we're having those conversations, which means we have a lot of, we gain a lot of insight and wisdom from our customers about what they need to be successful. And that helps drive our innovation. In fact, I would say one of the most important vectors for innovation comes from our customers. But it's hard to do that if what you have is a forum where you up and download features. It's a lot easier to do that when you're having an ongoing conversation with incredibly talented people in your customer base, and they're telling you what they're trying to do and what they're wanting to do. The other thing, and this is obviously not the hard numbers, but the reality for us is it's also incredibly satisfying. (laughs) So what happened is it's a little bit of a case where you get all these, you have all these conversations, customers are wildly successful, it's really fun, you're getting great brands as you go through your day. You, you get a package, you check social media. These are all customers. And so you're really, it's really exciting and fun and you're really helping them. And so you just want to keep doing that and you want to scale that model. And that's what happened to us. We really enjoyed the model. It was fun. It turned out to be strategically advantageous. And so we just kept scaling and scaling it and then had to get, you know, smart about uh, customer acquisition costs, CAC and gross margins and know where the minimum deal size is. We had to do one kind of hard analysis, which is what is the smallest deal we can do? And that is clear. But then from there, it was a little bit more feel of the the satisfaction and the joy and the vibe that was coming back from doing it. Startups, companies generally in startups, they have core values. And one of our core values is that we get a lot of satisfaction and the company gets broadly excited by transforming the way millions of people work. And to do that, you have to have a pretty deep relationship with them, at least in our part of the business doesn't mean that every company has to have that deep relationship. You can change the world with not doing that. But if you're trying to get the most from your sales team and your services team and your support team and do and going back to our frame, equip them, train them, coach them, analyze what's working and what's not, that is an intellectually hard problem independent of the technology. And so for that reason, because of the nature of our particular problem, we have these close relationships. Can you talk about how that feeds into this idea of a spark of magic? I've I've read and heard you talk about delivering a beautiful software with a spark of magic. Correct me if I have the statement wrong. That's exactly exactly right. Way, way back when, we tried to ask ourselves the why and the how of Highspot. And the why I just mentioned, actually, which is to create breakthrough products that transform the way millions of people work. Now, these aren't good or bad statements. They're just what 
we have as a set of values. You can be a wildly successful company and not transform the way millions of people work. You can transform the way a certain very small function works and potentially make billions and billions of dollars and transform your particular neck of the woods. We wanted to transform the way millions of people did their jobs. That was something that was exciting to us. And then we talked about how, what, how would we do that? How would we go about it at a very high level? This is all, of course, at a very high level. How would we differentiate ourselves in the marketplace? How did we think about ourselves differently? And one of the things we said, and, and you just quoted it, is create beautifully designed software with a spark of magic. And at a top level, that means we really care about our product. Again, not good and bad, but we will spend crazy amounts of time talking about the smallest details. We're very good, or we try to be very good about not introducing new abstractions unless we absolutely have to, thinking a lot about what people might think of as small things that we think are very big things. Maybe a good example is we, we change the way our content viewer, this is now in the weeds, but we change the way our content viewer comes up in the sense that you click on an item, you see the content, and we used to have a, an upper X button, and that was what we did. You came up, you had this beautiful experience, and then you hit X and you came back down. It turned out we decided that because of the way our product has evolved, the more natural thing was the back button. We talked about that for 4,962 hours. How should the back button be? How should the back stack work? What exactly is that going to do? It's this notion of really caring deeply about the product. And that's one of the ways we think about our differentiation. We have competitors that don't think about it in the same way, but they put a lot of effort into go to market, which is, again, not good or bad. It's just what we've decided. And then the spark of magic is really two things. One is our space is incredibly amenable to AI. And the reason it's so amenable to AI is that what other part of the world does the, the people that you're serving get up in the morning, record their goals in a structured way called CRM, literally go about their day, have lots of activity, and then tell you how the goals came out. Unbelievable. So the amount of AI that one can apply to good structured data with the intents being recorded is amazing. So part of it is we apply a lot of AI to various things. And we have a lot of kind of interesting algorithms and patented algorithms around that AI. So that's one piece of spark of magic. And we can do some things that people go, wait, how do you do that? What, what's happening there? And we talk about our inference engine or various things. The other spark of magic that I think about, and some companies are great at this, is so you're using the product. We're a knowledge worker type product, so you're in the product all the time. And there's little things that you discover where they just went, the team went the extra mile, and you're like, oh, that is so nice. It's just a little spark. It's, that's just beautiful. There are products out there that just do that, and it, just the attention to detail is wonderful. And we aspire to be one of those kinds of companies. And that's the other kind of spark of magic. So it's AI and moments of unexpected delight. On that second part, do you have ways that you close the loop on that or, or bring that into the company as like, how do you reinforce that? I think we talk about it a lot and we, we have this, I've built and been part of selling lots of different kinds of software. One of the things that is really wonderful about Highspot is that we are big users of our product. We get to live in our product. Now, many people don't have that advantage. Now, if you're building a knowledge worker type app, that can be true. But you know, I used to sell databases and development tools and management tools and operating systems. And you can't really server operating systems, I should say. So you can't live in those in the same way. Because we get to live in them, we can have this very high bandwidth internal conversation. And then because services, like I said, has this very close relationship with our customers, they're having a very high bandwidth conversation. 
and you can begin to get the feedback. I wish it would do this. And then you, you begin to do that. And then, of course, if you look at our JIRA, there's lots of tickets that say things like, oh, my gosh, why can't it just do X? And usually that's the extra mile that people want us to go. I, I've heard you talk about this before, but you have this unique kind of view on the account development team and how you've structured it within your go to market. And there's this constant seesaw between is it marketing? Is it sales? Is it marketing? And is, is it sales? And last time we talked, I remember you had a, a different take on that. And I wanted to just unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So the first thing I would say as people are building their companies is that what you're going to find is when you might assume there's an answer, there's often not. There's lots of answers. So there's no one way to do almost any of these things. And I've learned that even more as we've gotten more complicated, as we have multiple products. And we ask folks like Salesforce and Workday and ServiceNow and others that are, look a little bit like us in terms of being sales-led and being a, a relatively strategic sale, hey, how should we do cross-sell? And every company has a good answer, but a different answer. And so that happened. But I will give you our answer for account development. The first is, as you can tell by the name, we are very account-centric. We actually assign not leads to our account development reps, but we assign accounts. It's all based on accounts. And you have a set of accounts that you are working at any given time. Then there are a number of things that we do differently. The first, as you mentioned, is account development to us is a top-level function along with marketing and sales. And my... The reason we do that is because it's not like marketing and it's not like sales. And the symptom of that is if you talk to any company, it goes back and forth between them in the early days. It typically lands eventually in sales, mostly because of career path, because eventually ADRs more often go into sales than they go into marketing. But it looks a lot like marketing when you think about the activity, because you're very high in the funnel and you're reaching out and you're doing one-to-many communications in these various ways. So rather than having to go back and forth and then asking our sales leaders to do this other kind of thing, what we said is it's a top-level function. That's piece one. The other piece is that, and this will get more radical as we go through, almost every team separates out the inbound team and the outbound team. You'll see this SDR and BDR or MDR, these various names, but they're typically an inbound team and an outbound team, and we don't do that. ADRs are ADRs. They have their accounts. If an inbound comes in on that account, they will handle it. If they're doing outbound against that account and that succeeds, they handle it. The reason is because when you're account-based, that inbound activity might have come as a result of your outbound activity to that account three weeks ago. And so you want this very holistic view of the account and not get in this notion of, hey, if it happened to come in as a web-based demo request, that's somehow different than an outbound. You want a holistic view of the account. So that's unusual relative to most other companies. And then another thing we do is we let our salespeople sell and they are not prospecting the same way that other companies might ask their salespeople to do. Because we have specialists in that and we have a lot of them, which is these account development, and they're off prospecting, getting SQL, sales qualified leads. And that is the lingua franca between account development and sales. Sales is not having to do cold outreach. They're doing, of course, warm outreach. They're doing multi-threaded, doing all that, but they're not doing cold outreach. That is a specialized function. That's also relatively unusual in the space. And then the final thing is our ratio of account development to sales is we have higher a higher ratio of account development because they're doing all the prospecting. How high is the ratio? It varies, but it's between one and two compared to it for sales, as opposed to two salespeople for one account development. It's relatively flipped. 
Okay. So one to two ADRs per AE, depending on segment and, and yeah. deal size. Okay. And then the way, and then whenever you're doing that, the way that it might be a good function is you look at your CAC and you look at your, you look at your CAC and make sure that things are, are, are doing well there. And if your CAC is good and the people have specialized roles, and in our case, you have good promotion velocity between account development and sales, whether it's AE or AM or services or SE or all these different kinds of roles, then you have a model that works. So you have to look at all those different metrics. Account development to us is a core top level function. And does that mean that the head of that reports to the CEO or, or what's that look like in the executive the head room? Of that reports to the CEO. Very cool. Yeah, I imagine you also have a lot of leeway on CAC just given the, the deal size and the expansion lever that you have within these, in, in your net retention, right? Yeah, so we, we definitely have that. But you still have to watch that because it can get, it can get expensive, especially when for our account model has quite a few people in the account trying to make sure that customers mm. are successful. Love it. I could talk to you about go-to-market strategy all day. I love hearing how you think about this and the principles that have guided you. But I, I want to take it to the finish line with the Supersonic 6. So number one, how much coffee do you drink? I drink three lattes a day. Number two, what's one other Seattle company that you're following or studying right now? We try to really understand what our cohort is doing. So I guess there's 10 or 12 companies at our stage of maturity in Seattle, but really you do this across the board, absolutely in Seattle as well. So we try to really understand everything from the ratios of people they're having to what their go-to-market is. So when I say we're relatively unusual, it's because we've actually studied or tried to study all of these different companies. So we're looking at kind of everybody all the time because we want to make sure that we're calibrated correctly and that we're learning best practices from all the people that are doing amazing work here. Can you give me one Seattle company that, that stands out that you enjoy following or studying? We follow, it really is the case that I can tell you the go-to-markets for and, and other aspects of all of the unicorn companies here in Seattle, because that's our cohort in terms of maturity, but you know, whether it's Outreach or Auth0 or Rover or Convoy, or the list obviously goes on. So we're really thinking about them and hopefully have relationships with all of those companies. Number three, who's one Seattle person that you're learning from or studying right now? So it's actually really been fun as we think about this notion of equipping, training, coaching, analyzing teams generally. We've been thinking about all different kinds of teams. And one of the things that we've been doing is looking at coaches and star players of all these different teams, whether it's the Seahawks or the Storm or Sounders or Mariners, you pick your favorite thing. So maybe I'll just say Pete Carroll, but really we've been trying to understand coaching generally and broadly across the board. What do they do at training camp? How do they think about training camp versus how they coach during the game? How do they watch film? All of these kinds of things. And there's quite a few interesting books out there. And so we've been really doing that. So I'll just say Pete Carroll now is a placeholder for all of those. All of those. I books. love that. You've really carried your uh, metaphor uh, or your analogy all the way through. Number four, what's the one thing that Seattle needs to improve as a startup hub? I think we're a great startup hub. I would say there's two things that I wish were a little bit different. One is I wish we had better public transportation, especially in Seattle. We're in downtown Seattle. And if you've been in downtown Seattle, not in the last 12 months, but the 12 months before that, it's pretty brutal. You might spend 40 minutes going three blocks. I wish we had more public transportation. That's one. And the second is I hope that we evolve some of the culture of people that come to Seattle to work at big companies like a Google and a, an Amazon and a Microsoft and have a little bit more willingness to go join companies at earlier stages. In the Valley, 
one of the things that really stands out is how much those people are willing to take a chance on these earlier stage companies. I think the more we can have, that would be great. And that's just a matter of evolving the culture and education. But those are the two things. Traffic first. <laughs> traffic first. the traffic. That's a big one on my list too. <laughs> Number five, what's one piece of advice you'd give your 20-year-old self? Yeah, follow your passion for a job, for, an, for a category, for a particular part of the business. And the reason is not just because it's going to be more fun, but because a given job, if you're successful, will lead to another job like it that's bigger, which will lead to another job that's like it, but even bigger. So the road definitely can be varied, but it's probably along the path you're on. So make sure the current job is one that you love and you wish you could do it more and you wish you could have a bigger part of whatever that is. So that path gets set pretty early and you can do crazy things like decide to start a company midway through your career, but you want to make sure that every job is the job you want. Forget the title, forget how many people report to you. Really, unless you really need to, forget the salary, forget all that stuff. Just focus on what's going to be fun. What's What are you passionate about? What are you going to learn, especially early on? Focus on learning and everything else will work out. I Number talk to people early in career and they say, I'm going to take this other job. I don't like it as much. I don't like the company as much, but they're paying me a little more. Or I'm not going to be a senior manager. I'm going to be a director. Who cares? It's a title. It means nothing. Follow the right company, the right passion, the right manager, the right mentor, all of those things, and everything else will work out. Love it. Number six, what calls to action do you have for, for listeners? What can people in the local community do to help you? Are there... Are there jobs you want people to look at, events? Where, where should people go or, or pay attention? Yeah, so I guess my number one call to action is if people that are looking for that next opportunity, please send them our way. I think this is fair to say we are hiring across every department, every sub-department, every single role. We have hundreds and hundreds of open recs, you know, not all on the website, but we have hundreds and hundreds of open recs. We would love to have world-class talent join the company as we try to scale and grow. Check out the jobs page on Highspot. And it sounds like you have a great system to bring in people who don't have experience in tech, people who are younger to get in through the ADR door and rise up to maybe owning enterprise accounts in, in time. Absolutely. Very cool. Robert, this has been so much fun. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, it's Adam again. Quick note before you go. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show as much as I am enjoying making it. If you do like it, please leave a rating or a review. I would help other people find it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you have any feedback, send me an email, adamseattlepodcast at gmail.com. No underscores, no periods, just adamseattlepodcast at gmail.com.